Without doubt, it is one of the most commonly quoted phrases and yet misapplied phrases from all of the Bible in our modern time. If our society knows any phrase, any verse from the Bible, they may not know what book or what chapter or what verse it is, but they know that the Bible says, judge not. Don't judge, they say, right? The Bible says you're not to judge. In fact, some of you have seen this before. But there are some who suggest that if people now were allowed to sort of edit the Bible as they want to, that the scripture that Connor read a few minutes ago from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, would look like this. That all you would have left are the two words that begin Matthew chapter 7, judge not. And even if people don't go that far with it, there are a lot of people who will look at others and say, who do you think you are to judge me? It is obviously true that the Bible says, judge not or do not judge. And as most of you know, on Sunday mornings this year, we are studying only those quote-unquote red letters, those words of Jesus, and these happen to be some of those words found near the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So even Jesus himself is the one who said those words, judge not. But this morning I want to think about what he meant when he said those words. We're calling our lesson this morning, True Judging. Because I want us to think about not just those two words found at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, but I want us to think about the context in which they're found. Because those two words, judge not, those do not constitute all that Jesus taught on the subject of judging. We want to think this morning about two facts that are found in the context itself of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, that concern our judging specifically as it concerns judging other people. And then with that sort of as a a background, we want to think about two faults that we can sometimes fall into, if you please, two extremes that we can sometimes go into as it pertains to when we are judging other people. But first of all, let's think about those two facts that are found in the context itself. Fact number one is very simply that we must make judgments. Have you ever considered the fact that if someone says, don't judge, and just leaves it at that, that, that's the entirety of what they say to you, that they have actually made a nonsensical statement? If all they say, if all their comeback is, judge not, or don't judge, they've really made a nonsensical statement. Here's why. They have made a judgment. They have judged the fact that you are intelligent enough to understand what they're saying. They have judged the fact that you need to or want to hear what they are saying. They have judged the fact that you can grasp intellectually the meaning behind what they are saying. And they've judged the fact that you need to hear those things. And so if all someone says is, judge not or don't judge, and they just leave it at that, that's the conclusion of their thinking. It's, it's nonsensical. It doesn't even make sense in reality. And in fact, in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus was not condemning all judging. If people would ever read further than just those first two words, judge not, they would see that Jesus was not condemning all types of judging, even judging of other individuals. Notice, for example, what he said just one verse later in Matthew 7 and verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce. Wait, wait a minute. I thought it was wrong to judge. Jesus says you're going to from time to time. With the judgment you pronounce, 
you will be judged. Jesus is saying that we need to have grace. We need to think, but we must judge at times. We must pronounce, to use his words, a judgment. Or, in the same context, look down at verse 6, where he made that illustration. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs or swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What in the world does that have to do with judging? Well, first of all, we have to be able to discern or to judge between what is holy and what is not holy. Now, obviously, I am not the standard of that, and neither are you. Holiness is defined by God Himself through the Scriptures. But God is, Christ is saying, you have the ability to judge what is holy and what is not because of the standard that's already there. But further, Jesus is saying that you have the ability to judge between different types of people. He's not saying we should call people dogs or pigs or those sorts of things, but he's saying there are some who care so little about those things that are holy that they will even turn and attack the one who would bring that before them. Robert Mounts is a New Testament scholar, and writing about that word picture, verse 6, he wrote these words. He said, It would be unthinkable to take sacred food and give it to dogs, or valuable pearls and give them to pigs. Finding pearls unpalatable, pigs will trample them underfoot. And dogs will turn and attack those who fed them. In other words, use discretion. Use discretion. Wait a minute. I didn't think we were supposed to judge. No, we have to judge from time to time. But I want you to also think about the fact that it would literally be impossible to follow the teachings of the New Testament, and specifically the teachings of the New Testament that deal with interactions among other people, if we were condemned from making any type of judgment whatsoever. It would literally be impossible. Jesus himself, at a later time in John chapter 7 and verse 24, said, Judge not or do not judge by outward appearance, but judge with right judgment. The King James, I prefer there, has righteous judgment. If Jesus was condemning all judging in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, then what he said in John 7 contradicts himself. But he's simply saying we must be careful when we judge. Don't judge on the outward things. Don't jump to conclusions. But there is a righteous or a right type of judgment. Again, it's always based upon the standard of the Word of God. That's righteousness. That's right. Consider what Paul said to the Galatians. After listing that fruit of the Spirit near the end of Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, and so on and so forth through that list, he opened Galatians chapter 6 by saying, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now think about this. If we are condemned from making any kind of judgment, we cannot follow that verse. It is literally impossible. Because we must be able to judge who is spiritual and who needs restoration, who needs to be restored. And further, we cannot go to that person and try to restore them without a certain level of judging that individual. It would be impossible to follow this command. But again, did you notice there's a kindness in this verse as well. In a spirit of gentleness. We're going to get to that again in a few moments. But we cannot follow the command if we're condemned from all judging whatsoever. What about what Jesus said even later in the Sermon on the Mount? Just later in Matthew chapter 7, down in verse 15 and following, He said, Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly are ravenous or ravening wolves. You will know them or recognize them by their fruits. And then he goes in that picture, can, can grapevines bring forth thistles and all that sort of thing, healthy trees and bad fruit, you know that picture. And he ends it by saying again, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, if all judging is condemned in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7, how in the world are we supposed to follow verses 15 and following to judge who is a true prophet and who is a false prophet? We can't if all judging is condemned. We, we, we need to look at the fruit of their work if all judging is condemned. We must make judgments at times. And we could go through the New Testament specifically pointing out Basically, any verse or any command that deals with interacting with other people and show it would literally be impossible to follow the commands, the teachings of the New Testament if all judgment, all judging were condemned. And so some people are hearing this and they're going, I like this sermon so far. This is fantastic. We get to make judgments. We get to look down our noses at everybody else and show them what's wrong. This is the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. Fact number two, we will be judged. Uh Uh-oh. I don't like this sermon all of a sudden. Go back to the last slide, please, right? Every time you and I make a judgment, we need to keep the context of Matthew 7. And the rest of what Jesus says in these six verses in our minds, the point that Jesus is making is simply that we need to remember that one day we will face judgment as well. If in our judging of other people we have been cruel and harsh, if that's the measure we've used, then we can expect the same. Or if we have a high level of expectations, just unrealistic expectations of everybody else, then why will we think, well, you don't have to hold me to a very high standard whatsoever? And so Jesus, to make it clear to us, gives us a statement and an illustration. The statement is again found in verse 2, where he said, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you or back to you. Many years ago, a writer named John Brown wrote about this line. I I love this statement. He said, It is as if our Lord had said, Judging is serious matter, for it brings after it a fearfully important consequence. It brings after it a fearfully important consequence. If we are seeking to please God, it can be a temptation at times for us to hold people to my standard, to hold people to our own standard, rather than the standard by which we ourselves will be judged, which is the Word of God. And Jesus is making it clear that we always need to have in mind that we will be judged one day as well. If we go around acting like we are judge, jury, and executioner, we are sorely mistaken. Because on Judgment Day, those tables can easily be turned by the one who is judge, the one who is jury, and the one who will ultimately decide our fate. And so the statement is clear. We will be judged, so be careful in how we judge. But just in case that wasn't clear enough then, Jesus gives a powerful illustration. It's the one that some people who don't even know the Bible know that's in there somewhere. It's, it's that one about the, the speck in the log. It's almost ridiculous to a point, and that is the point of it. The English Standard Version translates verse 3 this way, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I know some translations have planks and things, but speck and log is what we'll go with this morning. 
And and the next verse goes even further, saying that some even try to remove the speck from someone else's eye when there's this log hanging out of their own eye. And, of course, then Jesus says it's hypocritical to try to do such a thing. And the picture, if you get in your mind, is kind of ridiculous. It's, It's exaggerated. And it's exaggerated to make a point, and that is to humble us. Here is somebody who has a minor fault. Something that, yes, is wrong or difficult or could be a stumbling block to another person. But something that with just a little bit of work, a little effort, that that can be overcome. And along comes somebody whose faults are so noticeable that they absolutely cannot be ignored. And yet instead of taking care of that major fault in their own life, they begin to try to remove that minor fault from somebody else's life. Sound like anything we might struggle with at times? Jesus says, take care of your own major faults first, and then we can lend a hand to help with the minor faults. But what if we don't? We will be judged in like manner. Our faults will still be with us because they've not been taken care of. And the only one who has no specks or logs in his eye, that course being Christ, will be the one that we stand before in judgment Will we have a log still in our eye? Will we still have those major faults that we decided just weren't all that bad because it wasn't, that's not my fault, and yet we'll stand in judgment unprepared? Those are two facts. And we look at Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 6, and, and they're plain. We, we must make judgments, yes, but we also need to be careful in how we judge. And so, with those two facts in mind, for the remainder of our time, well, let's make this very practical. Let's think about two faults. The two faults that we can fall into, or if you please, two extremes that we can go to as far as it pertains to judging. And by the way, depending on your personality, you'll probably tend towards one of these extremes or the other. But almost all of us will tend toward both extremes at different times in our life or with different relationships in our life. Extreme number one, or getting out of balance number one, is that it can be, we can become overly easy and begin to excuse sin. This is the mindset of the person that says, I just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Now, I understand this extreme or this imbalance. I hate confrontation. I mean, I hate it. There are very few things that get my stomach in a knot more than, than confrontation. It drives me crazy. And, and, and then add to that, I don't like looking someone in the eyes and telling them they've been doing something that's wrong. I just don't like doing that. It's just a personality thing. Some of you all like that stuff, and I think you're nuts, okay? But, but, but I, I just don't like that. It bothers me to have to do that. But think with me for a moment. If someone is doing something that is sinful... Is it really doing that person good if we just allow that person to continue on in his or her sin? No. That's not loving somebody. At times we must grow a backbone and be willing to hurt someone's feelings for their own good. No, it's not easy. But if we want that person to go to heaven, we will make that judgment. Did you notice in that picture that Jesus drew of the log and the speck, that kind of ridiculous picture, the exaggerated picture, Did you notice what he did not say? He did not say to remove the log from your own eye and then leave the speck in your brother's eye. That's not what he said, is it? He said you remove the log from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck or help remove the speck from your brother's eye. Removing something out of someone's eye is very uncomfortable. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not easy. 
But we all know it's necessary. If you're in Matthew chapter 7, turn over one account of the gospel to the book of Mark. Near the middle of that book in Mark chapter 10, and near the middle of that chapter, beginning in verse 17, we're not going to read the whole account because we're going to use this account again in a few weeks. But in Mark 10, beginning in verse 17, you have the account of the one we typically call the rich young ruler. And you remember, he's the one that comes to Jesus and asks that wonderful question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's hard to ask a better question, right? That's a fantastic question. And Jesus responds, you remember, by listing several of the commands that all the Jews would have known. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, and on and on he goes. And this man is able to say, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth or from my youth up. Now here's where I want you to focus. Notice how verse 21 of Mark 10 begins. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Stop right there. Don't read any further. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Let that sink in for a moment. We know that Jesus loves everyone. We know that Jesus loved everybody that was around him on that day. But have you ever considered the fact of how rare it is for the Scripture to actually come out and state that Jesus loved one person? There's something significant that's getting ready to happen here for it to point out to us that Jesus loved this man when he looked at him. And so people who have this extreme, this imbalance, would say, well, good, you followed the commands. I love you. I don't want to hurt your feelings. You just keep doing what you're doing, and you'll be fine. But that's not what Jesus did, is it? Continue verse 21. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. How is that loving? Jesus told him something he did was wrong. That is loving. Because Jesus knew something in this man's life that was holding him back from full allegiance to the Lord. And when Jesus looked at that person and loved him, he was willing to hurt the man's feelings for his own good. This had to change. And so Jesus loved him enough to grow a backbone and to say, this has to change in your life. Too often we are afraid of of conflict or we are afraid of someone else's reaction. But if we love people, if we truly love people and we see them as souls on their way to eternity unprepared, we will make a judgment. But it will be a judgment done in humility and grace and forgiveness. Elders, for example, are told to shepherd the flock. Part of the, one of the most difficult parts of that responsibility is reaching out to those who are wayward. If the attitude of elders is just, well, they'll find their way back. Or we'll just tell the preacher to preach a couple sermons on that and that'll take care of it. That's not love. But folks, it's not just elders. Every Christian has this responsibility. Near the very end of the book of James, James 5 verses 19 and 20, James said, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and elders, no, 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 and someone brings him back, someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I'm someone. And so are you. But it takes being willing to make a judgment. 
and loving that person enough to hurt their feelings for their own good. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful. He didn't thank Jesus in the moment and go, Oh, I'm sure glad you brought that up. I've, I've got, you're right, Jesus. I, I've got to change it. He went away sorrowful. And there's nowhere in the New Testament that gives us any indication that he ever turned back to what was right. But it's too easy to fall into the extreme of just being overly easy and saying, well, I know it's wrong, but I love them too much to say anything. Folks, we should love people too much to not say anything. That's extreme number one. On the flip side is what we usually think of. And that is the extreme of being overly harsh and jumping to conclusions. Have you ever noticed that if you're sitting at a red light and the person who's in front of you, if the light turns green and they don't move in, oh, I don't know, 0.001 seconds, you start getting mad at them and figure out why they hadn't moved yet? But if you're the one who's at the red light and it turns green and less than half a second later someone honks the horn behind you, you start making excuses as to why you didn't move. Right? Everybody's going, that's not me. You know, I never did anything like that. No, I don't know who you're talking about. Adam, it must just be you. Right? Wrong. It's all of us. Right? We all understand. It's easy for us to have that mindset of, I'm going to attack that person because I know why they hadn't moved yet. They're just not paying attention. You know, they could be carrying someone who just got out of chemotherapy. And every little jarring move of the car adds to their passenger's nausea. They could have a passenger seat full of drinks for their family. And they don't want to have those spilled all over the car that they just got out of the car wash. They could have had the worst day of their life at work. They could have just lost their job. And just driving across town is rather amazing that they're physically able and mentally able just to operate the vehicle. I know it's a silly example But it shows how easily we just jump to conclusions. And sometimes just jump down people's throats if they irritate us or bother us. Turn over one more account of the gospel to the book of Luke. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 9. And this may seem like an extreme case, but I hope it illustrates the point and hits home with some of us. Near the end of Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin reading all the way down in verse 51 and read through verse 56. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, did not receive Jesus, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And some translations add the word the rebuke there. And they went on to another village. Now do you see these two, James and John? And do you see them just jumping to conclusions? They saw evidence of something that just was not right. The people were not receiving Jesus. And what specifically that looks like, we're not told. But they weren't receiving Jesus. And so James and John were absolutely ready to just take him out. But did you also notice the text at least gives us some indication as to why they were not receiving Jesus. His face, Jesus' face, was set toward Jerusalem. It says it twice. His face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what that specifically meant as far as his interaction with the people, his communication. I don't know what it specifically meant, but it's, it's important the text tells us that twice. 
His face was set to go toward Jerusalem. And so the people in Samaria did not receive Jesus. But James and John didn't care about that. They simply saw people who did not receive Jesus, and again, whatever that looked like, and so their reaction was, let's just destroy him and ask questions later. And because of that, Jesus rebukes them. Some translations I mentioned a moment ago contain the words of the rebuke. The English Standard Version puts it as a footnote in verse 55. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives but to save them. Whether that's supposed to be in the actual text or not, I'll leave that to people who are a whole lot smarter than I am. But simply knowing the fact that Jesus rebuked James and John, it speaks volumes. You see, they were missing the larger point. Yes, Jesus cared about the people of Samaria. But at this point in his ministry, we may even say at this point in his life, he was not meant to stay in that location for very long. His face was set toward Jerusalem. We know the rest of the story. We know why his face was set toward Jerusalem. James and John didn't get it yet. But Jesus had his face set toward, that's where he was going. It was not meant at this time for him to stay there for what we might call a long-term mission plan. By the way, the people of Samaria would have their opportunities, wouldn't they? Remember Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended into heaven? He told his apostles and the rest who are gathered there, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And to the end or the uttermost parts of the earth. But in the moment, that didn't matter to James and John. These people had their chance. They rejected their chance. Let's just call fire down from heaven, destroy them. Let's ask questions later. Can I ask, how many of us have that same struggle? We give somebody a chance, they fail, and we don't really worry to try to find out why. Instead, we just jump to conclusions, we call off any communication. They must be wrong. We'll just cut them off. Folks, Christians don't act that way. Yes, we must judge. Yes, we must make discernment. But we also must hand out grace. Be willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. Remember, we'll be judged the way we were judged. Don't you want that for yourself? Don't you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt from time to time? Don't you want people to extend you grace in my case, a whole lot of the time. Not just a little bit of the time, but a whole lot of the time. But sometimes we see somebody doing something, we're ready just to light them up. We're ready just to write them up. We're ready to, to talk about them. We're ready to, to send text messages about them to somebody else, to gossip about them, to, to just lambaste them all over town. God's people need to be willing to extend grace and not just jump to conclusions and jump down people's throats. Yes, we must make a judgment. But we need to ask questions first. Not seek to destroy and ask questions later. A poet named Spare wrote a simple little four-line poem. He said, The faults I see in others' lives are often true of me. So help me, Lord, to recognize my own hypocrisy. It is true that Jesus taught that we are to judge. But we must be careful and be reminded of the fact that we will one day be judged as well. 
And when I stand before Christ at the judgment bar, I for sure want grace. And I for sure need mercy. And so Jesus said in John 12, 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. This sermon is one that caused me to do a whole lot of soul-searching, self-reflection. It is so easy to fall into those extremes. Depending on your personality, it may be very easy for you to just excuse things, push things away, never make a judgment, never want to hurt anybody's feelings whatsoever. That's usually me. But there are other times where I see someone maybe at a distance, maybe I don't know them all that well, and so it's easy for me just to to jump to conclusions and think, well, I'm just never going to deal with them. Forget it. I mean, who cares? Judge not is not all Jesus said. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Yes, I must make a judgment. But it's a judgment filled with grace. And it's a judgment that doesn't jump to conclusions. Because one day, I'll be judged by the only perfect standard, the Word of God. So as it pertains to judging, how will you be judged? The words that I have spoken, Jesus said, these will judge you on the last day. And he's the one that spoke, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Do you have something in your life, a relationship in your life, where you've not been willing to stand up? You know what someone doing, is doing is wrong, but you haven't been willing to step in and lovingly tell them, I want you to go to heaven so much that I'm willing to stand and study with you and encourage you to do better. Maybe this morning you need to respond and say, I, I need some encouragement in that. It's hard for me. It's not easy. That's not my personality. We'd love to pray with you to encourage you. Or maybe being reminded of what Jesus said has reminded you that sometimes I'm too quick to just cut someone off, to just assume I know why they did that, and to not seek restoration. And maybe this morning you need to be forgiven that. Or maybe this morning... You've never made the judgment that you need to become a Christian. It's a decision. Oh, it's accompanied by actions, turning from sin, repentance, confessing Jesus as Lord, being baptized, immersed in water for forgiveness of sins, but all that is based upon a decision, a judgment, that that Jesus really is who he said he was, and, and he's the only one who can save me. I want to spend eternity with him. And so maybe this morning you need to make that judgment, that you're going to live your life for him every day. How's your life? If you're unprepared for eternity, if you're unprepared for that judgment bar of Christ, we invite you to come. We stand and sing to encourage you.